And now, Lord, we pray for your blessing, your anointing upon the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God. O Holy Spirit, come. These precious people, Lord, have assembled, and in myself I have nothing I can do for them, Lord, but you certainly can, and your Word has power. So, Lord, minister. Touch hearts today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been studying in the Gospel of Luke for about the last, oh, six weeks or so, and we've been seeing the announcement and the birth of the single greatest individual that the world has ever known, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Luke has been very methodical about the way he has been bringing various witnesses to show us the beauty and the glory of this one coming into the world. Now think back with me. The first witness is the angel Gabriel. Gabriel comes to John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, and Gabriel says to Zacharias, Behold, your wife, Elizabeth, is going to conceive, and she's going to give birth to a son. You're going to name him John, and John is going to make ready a people prepared for who? The Lord. Then the same angel Gabriel comes to Mary, and he says to Mary, you're also going to conceive and give birth to a son, and you're going to call his name Jesus, and he's going to be great, and he's going to be called the Son of the Most High. Then fast forward a few months, and Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, she's pregnant with this baby. She greets uh, her relative Mary, who's coming in the door, and the baby in her womb leaps for joy, and she says, how is it that the mother of my Lord has come to me? So here, we've already seen Gabriel. He gives the witness that Jesus is the Lord. He gives the witness that he's the Son of the Most High. Elizabeth gives the witness that he is her very Lord. And then Zacharias begins to prophesy. And Zacharias calls him the Horn of Salvation. And he calls him the Lord God of Israel. So already we've seen many witnesses. And then in chapter 2, this angel, without a name, shows up to these shepherds out on a hillside, and he says, Today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior. In the Greek, it's Savior, Christ, Lord. That's who this baby is. He's Savior. He's Messiah. He's King and Master of all. But Luke isn't quite done with all of the witnesses. He's going to summon two more this morning. And their names are Anna and Simeon. And we want to look at their testimony, because usually in a court of law, if you have two or three corroborating independent witnesses that are saying the same thing, it's taken as truth, isn't it? It's taken as valid. In the Old Testament, you could not indict someone for a crime except on the basis of two or three witnesses. In the New Testament, Matthew 18, Jesus said, you are not to exercise church discipline unless there are two or three witnesses. And then he says, Paul says in the book of 1 Timothy that you are not to publicly rebuke an elder or accuse that elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. So Luke's going to summon two more witnesses to the bar to help us to see the identity of this one who has just come into the world and what he has come to do. Now, Let's get a little bit of an overview on who these witnesses are. 
There's a couple things that are interesting about both of them. Both of them are elderly. It was revealed to the first guy, his name's Simeon. It was revealed to him that he was not going to die until he saw the Lord's Christ or the Lord's Messiah. So it implied in that statement is this man had been growing older and older and older, but the Lord's promise to him is you're not going to die until you've seen the Messiah. The second one is this elderly woman. We're told in verse 37 that she was 84 years old. So they're both elderly. But the second thing that we notice about them is that they were both righteous and devout people. In fact, we're told of, of Simeon in verse 25 that he was righteous and devout, a devoted man of God. But the same could be said of Anna, couldn't it? Because she spent her time in the temple fasting and praying and communing with God. So we have two righteous and devout individuals summoned to give their testimony to who this baby is. And there's one thing you want to know from a witness, and that is that that person is going to be honest, right? You want them to tell the truth. Well, Luke is going to great pains to show us that we can trust the witness of these two individuals because they're righteous people. They're devout people. Now, let's get a little bit of the setting for when this is taking place. If you go to verse 21, it says, When eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given him by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. It was customary, of course, according to the law, that every male born son in Israel would be circumcised on the eighth day. Well, Mary and Joseph are devout Jewish people. They love the Lord. They're following his law. And so on the eighth day of Jesus' birth, they brought him to have him circumcised. And they did there what the angel had told them. Remember, the angel had told Mary, you shall call his name Jesus. And the angel had appeared to Joseph and said, you'll call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. So in obedience, reflecting on the truthfulness of that angelic visitation, they, in obedience, called him Jesus on his eighth day. And then in verse 22, we have a scene 32 days later. You might tend to just run these two verses together and think they're happening on the same day, but that's not true because a woman was unclean for 40 days in Israel after she had given birth to a male child. So on the eighth day, they circumcise him. 32 days later, after 40 days, now she was able to go up to the temple. And at that point, if you had a male child, you were supposed to present that child to the Lord. Go back with me to Exodus around chapters 12 and 13 for a minute. You don't have to turn there, but just think with me. The children of Israel are in bondage. God sends Moses to deliver them. And you remember that he sent the destroying angel through Israel, <clears throat> through the land of Egypt, to strike down and to kill every firstborn male child within that entire land except for those who had the blood over the doorpost. Remember that? Okay, we're all there. In chapter 13, God goes on to say that he lays claim to every firstborn child of Israel because he had spared them. Their life was given back to them by God, and so that was his. Well, later on in the history of Israel, God said, I'm going to accept the tribe of Levi for those firstborn ones. But... Every firstborn male still needs to be brought to the temple and their parents need to pay a shekel or five shekels to redeem that person so that uh, they're now free from that 
obligation to be solely and devotedly the Lord's, the Levites took their place. Well, that's what's going on here. Mary and Joseph are bringing Je Jesus to the temple. They're presenting him to the Lord. They're paying their five shekels to redeem him. And they're giving that five shekels to the um, Levites. And then notice what it says in verse 23. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, separated unto the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, if you go back in the law, you'll find out that if you were able to, you wouldn't offer two pigeons or turtle doves, you'd offer a lamb. But a lamb was an expensive sacrifice. And if you were too poor to be able to offer a lamb, it was there was a provision made in the law that you could offer two turtle doves or two young pigeons, which were very inexpensive. You could buy them for a few cents. So what does that tell you about Mary and Joseph and their economic status at this time? They're poor. They're poor. Evidently, they had not ever heard the prosperity gospel that they can be rich if they just had enough faith, which is really a, a heresy. It's a, it's a horrible doctrine in the church that most people have been able to see through it by this time, but folks, some of the most godly people who have ever walked the planet have been poor. Some of the most faithful and faith-filled people have been poor. So don't let anyone try to, to put a trip over on you saying, if you just had enough faith, you could be rich like I am. It's just not true. It's not true. But that brings us to verse 25. And in verse 25, uh, we're introduced to our first witness. This witness's name is Simeon. And we're going to learn a lot from Simeon. There are six things that I want you to see about Simeon. And the first one I want you to see is that Simeon longed for Jesus. He longed for him. Look at verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. Now, the consolation of Israel, that was just another title for the Messiah. The comfort of Israel. And he was looking for it. That means he was expecting it. He knew it was coming, and he couldn't wait till it got there. And every day he was looking for this Messiah, this consolation, this comfort of Israel to come. Now, why did they call the Messiah the consolation of Israel? Well, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So here is the prophet. Comfort my people. Now, what kind of people need to be comforted? Grieving, disturbed, people who are going through distress and turmoil. See, all people everywhere are in that condition, aren't they? they? Most of them don't know it, but all of us, we're all in a fallen world, we're all fallen people, we're all shot through with sin and depravity, That's, we're born into this world in that way, and sin leads to misery and pain and suffering and loneliness and guilt and shame, and so all of us have a measure of all of those things because we're fallen people. But the prophet says, comfort my people, because 
The warfare's ended. You see, we are at war with God. But through the cross, this prophet is talking about what's going to happen through this child brought into the world. Through Jesus, the warfare is going to stop. We're going to lay down our arms of rebellion. And we're going to wave the white flag of unconditional surrender and say, I don't want to fight with you anymore, Lord. I give up. I love you. I trust you. I give myself to you. The war's gone. Reconciliation takes place through the blood of the cross. And not only that, he says, her iniquity has been removed. That's why the warfare is over. Because sin is gone. Sin is what causes this animosity between God and man. Iniquity has been removed. And thirdly, the Lord has paid double for all her sins. In other words, what Jesus Christ is going to do in his life, death, burial, and resurrection is more than sufficient to cover the sins of all people everywhere. So, the warfare is over, iniquity is removed, and the Lord has paid the price of all her sins. And so comfort my people in their spiritual distress because a Savior has been brought into the world. So, that's what's going on. He's longing for this consolation of Israel. He's looking for it. He's expecting it. You know, there's coming our Messiah again one day, isn't he? Are you longing for and looking for and expecting him? So he longed for Jesus, but then he was led to Jesus. I like that. Look at verse 25. Let me find verse 25. Here we go. It says, The Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. What, what phrase or what word just keeps popping out of these verses to you? The Spirit. The Holy Spirit's mentioned three times in three verses. Verse 25, The Holy Spirit is upon him. Verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. Verse 27, he came in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is doing something really special and really unique in the life of this man, Simeon. The power of the Spirit is upon him, which causes him to have a revelation. It is revealed to him, interestingly, those people who talk about, well, God can't reveal things anymore. Well, he was certainly revealing something to Simeon. And he was revealing to him that he was not going to die until he saw the Lord's Christ. And then, because of this revelation, it says, he came in the Spirit into the temple and he found this baby. Now, isn't that a coincidence? That he just happened to be at the right place at the exact right time when Mary and Joseph brought their baby to the temple to present him to the Lord. Now, the temple's a big place. You could be on one side, and Mary and Joseph could be on the other, and you never see them. It's a huge place. But the Spirit of God orchestrated these events and stirred up Simeon to go to the place where Jesus was going to be. There was a leading of the Holy Spirit. And folks, I, still, I believe that the Holy Spirit still can and does lead God's people today, sometimes through supernatural means. Go to the book of Acts with me in your mind. Not, don't have to turn there, but in your mind. Acts chapter 16. Remember Paul and his missionary band are traveling. And they tried to go into Asia. And the Spirit of the Lord would not let them go. Then they tried to go up north into Bithynia. 
the Spirit of Jesus wouldn't permit them. So they couldn't go east. He wouldn't permit them to go there. He couldn't go north. Couldn't go there. They'd already been south. So the only possible direction was to go west. So that's what they did. They just kept traveling west until they hit water and they couldn't go any further. And so they stopped. And it was that night that Paul got this crazy dream about a guy over in Macedonia who says, come over here and help us. And they interpreted that to mean that God was directing them to go to Macedonia, principally Philippi, the chief city of Macedonia. So they went there. Revival broke out. A church was formed. What I'm simply saying is that in the early church, they had no problem with the Lord giving them special direction, special uh, guidance. Acts chapter 13, the prophets and apostles are gathered in Antioch, and they're fasting, and they're ministering to the Lord, probably a reference to worship. They're just worshiping and fasting, and the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Special guidance. Or Acts chapter 8, we have a guy named Philip. He's in Samaria. The Samaritans are getting saved. There's a great work of God going on. And in the middle of that work, an angel of the Lord appears to him and says, you need to go down to this desert road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he obeys. He takes off and he goes down to this desert road. And then the Spirit says, go up and join yourself to that chariot over in the distance. Philip obeys. The, the Ethiopian eunuch who's on that chariot is converted. He brings the gospel back to Africa and the work of God goes from there. All I'm trying to say is that in the early church, this was not some something that people decried and said, this can't happen. It's, it's uh, you know, I guess we'll let this kind of thing happen until the Bible is completed. But after the Bible is completed, it's no longer applicable. It can't happen any longer. Folks, there's not a verse of scripture that tells us that God has got a date when he's going to stop doing what he used to do. Now, there might be times and seasons when there's an ebb and flow, granted. But if you look down through church history, you're going to see God doing amazing things at different parts of history. And so let's not give up on the fact that God may want to guide us in special ways, that he might want to speak through a dream or a vision or a word of prophecy. So here was Simeon. He was led to Jesus by the work of the Holy Spirit. And the third thing we see about Simeon was that he, he looked on Jesus when he finally got there. He looked on him. And that's emphasized for us. Verse 26. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Before he had seen him. Now look at verse 29. Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. He saw him. His eyes looked on him. As we go through this life of Simeon here, I hope that you start to see that there are parallels between what's going on in Simeon's life at this time and our own life. Was there ever a time when you longed for Jesus? If you're a Christian, there was. Because God broke you. God convicted you of sin. He showed your utter danger of dying apart from a Savior. And, and you began to say, is there any hope for me? Where can I go? How can I have salvation? How can I get rid of this shame and this fear and this guilt that I'm ridden with? You longed 
that there would be a way out, someone to free you and to release you. And then how, were you ever led to Jesus by an invisible hand, a supernatural hand? You found yourself strangely interested in spiritual things where you never were before. Perhaps a friend or a family member started to talk to you about the Lord, and you started to come into an understanding of who this Jesus was. Maybe you were at a hotel and you started reading a Gideon's Bible. Or you had a Bible of your own, you started to read it, you never were interested in reading it before. You're being led by the invisible leading of the Holy Spirit to Jesus. But then all of that would have done no good unless you personally looked on Him with the eyes of faith. I'm not just talking about understanding that Jesus was the Son of God who came into the world. I'm talking about looking with the heart actually seeing Him in His glory for who He is. Has that happened to you? You saw Him, and by seeing Him, you loved Him. Your heart went out to Him. You wanted to run from sin, and you wanted to run to Him. You began to hate the evil in your life, and to love Him and the righteousness that you wanted Him to produce in, in you and through you. You saw Him. You saw His glory. Whereas before, there was no glory in Christ, but now you saw the glory of Jesus. That's what's going on here in Simeon. He sees him. He's led to him. His eyes see him before he dies. And then the next thing we see about Simeon is that he lifts up Jesus. He embraces him. We see that in verse um, 27. He came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms. It wasn't just enough to see him. He wanted to hold him. He embraced him. There was touch. There was affection. He was cradling this baby. There was warmth. There was a union between Simeon and the child. He was actually holding the Son of God in his very own arms. And it's not enough for us to see Christ by faith. We've got to become in, come into vital union with him. We've got to embrace him. There's got to be an actual touch between us and him. It's got to be like we're the vine and he's, or we're the branch and he's the vine. We've got to be plugged in, connected in a vital way, joined to Jesus who is our life. So he longed for Jesus, was led to Jesus, looked on Jesus, he lifted up Jesus, and then we find that he was liberated by Jesus. Because it says there in verse 29, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. Two words to note there. Release and depart. You're releasing your servant to depart. He didn't say you're releasing your servant to cease to exist in peace. He says to depart. Well, now when you depart from this room, what are you doing? Do you cease to exist no, you're just going from this place to another place, right? That's what Simeon's talking about. Lord, you are releasing my spirit so that I can go from this house of clay, this body, this world, into the very presence of God Almighty. And the word depart in the Greek is an interesting word because it's used of a prisoner who's released from prison. Or it's used of a, um, a ship that is docked to a bay, and it's the, the, the ropes that are holding it there are untied so that it can go out to sea. 
It's used of oxen that are yoked so that they can pull a plow, but it's used of taking off that yoke from the ox. So this is a word that speaks about being released, released from prison, released from the dock, released from the yoke. It's also used of striking a tent, taking down a tent so that the camper's free to go and he doesn't have to live in that tent anymore. What we're told here is that Simeon understood that he was being freed to go into the very presence of God. This was a release. He wasn't being tied down to this world of suffering and sin and evil, which this world is. He felt that he was free now to go into the very presence of God. In the book of James, it defines death for us. It says death is when your spirit leaves your body. It's not the cessation of brainwave activities or when your heart starts pumping or your lungs start filling. It's when the spirit leaves the body. And that's what, that's what uh, Simeon was talking about. I'm ready, Lord. I'm ready for you to release me, to depart in peace, because my eyes have seen my salvation. This, he looked on this baby, and because the spirit had led him there, he knew this baby was his salvation. So he was liberated by Jesus. And then we find that he laid open the truth about Jesus. He laid open the truth about Jesus, starting in verse 31. He says, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul, to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Notice something really interesting here. Verse 28 says, He took him in his arms and blessed God and said to God. So he blesses God and he prays to God. Then, verse 34, he blesses Mary and Joseph and he prophesies to them. So first he blesses God and prays to God. Then he blesses Mary and Joseph and speaks or prophesies to them. So we want to see what was he saying? What truths about Jesus was he laying open to them? Well, first of all, it was the truth that this baby was salvation. He was God's salvation. Folks, where is salvation found? It's found in Christ. I mean, that we, we get that. But a lot of people don't. A lot of people think that we find salvation through rule-keeping, law-keeping, good works, joining a church. You know, if you just find the, the in-church or the right church, that's going to be enough. That's it. That's your ticket. Or baptism. Or if you have Christian parents and you know the truth of the Bible, that's enough. Folks, salvation is in a person. And it's the person of Jesus. If you have the person, if you're united to Christ, you have salvation. If you're not united to Christ, you don't have salvation. That's as simple as it gets. And if you are united to Christ, your life is being transformed. You are being sanctified. You no longer can habitually live in sin the way you used to. If there's anyone here today who's content to live in sin, you haven't been united to Christ yet. When Christ comes in, sin starts to go out. The Spirit's not going to cohabitate with a person and, and just let you go on living in sin. 
if you're living in sexual immorality and you're content to do that, you need to repent. You need to come to Jesus. You need Him to cast out those sins. And it doesn't have to be that. It can be any sin. It can be lying or stealing or cheating. Um, this is what takes place when the Lord deals with us in salvation. So salvation is in a person. Simeon recognized that. It's in this baby. He's salvation. And then he says, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. This is a prepared salvation. Whose idea was it that man, that sinners here on this earth would ever be saved? Sure wasn't ours, was it? It was God's idea. God came up with this plan before He created the universe. It said in Ephesians 1.4 that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. God's plan stems to that degree. You see, this salvation is sovereignly bestowed, sovereignly planned, sovereignly given to the people that God decides to give it to. It's a prepared salvation. And notice thirdly, it was a salvation that comes to all people. He says in verse 31, you have prepared the salvation in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Now wait a minute. Jews didn't talk like that. Jews believed that only Jews would enter heaven. And that Gentiles were just the, the, the things that would burn to provide the fuel for hell. Really, that's how they looked at it. They wouldn't touch Gentiles. They wouldn't eat with Gentiles. Simeon, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is prophesying. And he's prophesying that this little baby is not only going to save Jews, he's going to save non-Jews. People all over the world. This is going to be a universal salvation. Not that every person in the world is going to be saved by him, but people from every tribe, people, tongue, and nation in the world will be converted and redeemed by this little baby. This would have blown the minds, I believe, of any Jew hearing this prophecy. And I think that's probably why it says in verse 33, his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. Wow. Gentiles. Non-Jews coming into the kingdom. This baby is going to have a worldwide influence. And then Simeon blessed them, and he said something interesting to Mary. He said to her, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed. He's appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel. And commentators are divided as to what he meant by that. Some think it, it means that some within Israel would fall by converting grace. They would be humbled. They would see their sin and be convicted, and then they would rise in faith to embrace Christ. Others believe that this is talking about damnation and salvation. The fall of many, the rise of many. In other words, that Jesus Christ himself will be the cause of either your salvation, or if you stumble over him and will not receive him, he will be that one who is your ultimate judge and will cast you into hell. He will be the one that determines whether you are saved or lost. He'll be the arbiter, the determiner. Jesus is Lord over all. Folks, it's not that we have Jesus in our hands and we can do with him whatever we want to do. 
That's not the truth. The truth is Jesus has us in his hands, and he can do with us whatever he wants to do. Folks, do you have a big man and a little God today? Or do you have a little man and a big God? The Bible presents a little man with a great, great, great big God. Jesus is Lord. And that, that means something. That means something. And then he goes on to say in verse 35, And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Now what does he mean here? A sword will pierce even your own soul. Who's he talking to first of all? He's talking to Mary. Mary, a sword is going to pierce your soul. I believe what he's saying there is that, Mary, you're going to go through some suffering because of this baby. When you see him there hanging on a cross, when you watch those Roman soldiers take a hammer and start driving spikes through his wrists and through his ankle. When you see them take a spear and thrust it into his side, it's going to be like a sword slicing you open. You're going to suffer. I mean, moms, what would it be like for you to watch this happen to your son? You can relate, can't you, a little bit to Mary, what she went through that day? Simeon's just opening it up. Mary, yes, this is who your son's going to be. And you have a great privilege that you were chosen to bear this one, but it's going to mean some suffering for you. So he lays open the truth about Jesus, doesn't he? He lays it open. He's a savior. He's a prepared savior. He's a sovereign savior. He's a savior to all peoples. And he's one that's going to bring suffering into your life. You need to realize that and be prepared for it. But then we see in verse 36, there's a shift now. And there's a second witness that Luke brings in to help us understand the glory and the identity of this baby. And this is that woman, Anna. So let's take a look at her, her witness here. There was a prophetess. Did you know that women could prophesy in the Bible? You guys know that? It wasn't restricted to men. In fact, even in the New Testament, we were told your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. We're told that Philip had four daughters, virgin daughters, who were what? Prophetesses. So, this was something that was available to men and to women. Here is a woman in the Old Covenant. Jesus had not yet died, so this is the Old Covenant. She was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. So she got married at a young age, probably. She lived with him seven years, then he died, and she became a widow. And it says, and then as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. So she's 84 years old. Let's say she married at 15. Her husband dies when she's 22. Here, she's 84. Let's do the math on that. 84 minus 22 is 62, right? Did I get that right? For 62 years, this woman has devoted herself to what? Communing with God. <laughs> she just wants to be with God. She goes to the temple and she spends all her time there. You say, well, why, why are you doing that, Anna? I mean, come on, get a life. Go out and get a job and... This woman just, 
See, she had lost her husband and she made the Lord her husband. And so she just wanted to be with him. She wanted to be with her husband. So she fasts. And it wasn't some kind of a distasteful duty that she had to go through. This was voluntary. She was seeking God daily. I mean, what, don't you see in her a beautiful life of, of godly, devout woman? I love this woman, this Anna. So for 62 years, she's just been pursuing God and getting to know God and communing with God. And there are three things that I see about Anna. First of all, she perceived. She knew that this baby was the Messiah as soon as she saw him. It says... Let me go back here. And then as a widow to the age of 84, verse 37, she never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings, prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of Him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Somehow, just like Simeon, she knew. No one told her. Mary and Joseph didn't go up there and whisper in her ear, Hey, I've got a secret to tell you. This baby here, the angel says he's the son of God. It was none of that. The Spirit of God was able to somehow let her know that this was the redemption of Israel. And folks, those of you who spend the most time communing with God are probably going to be the ones who are most likely to be able to hear from God and to follow His voice and to have His guidance. Anna gives us an example of that, doesn't she? She knew who this one was because the Spirit was directing her. So she perceived that. Secondly, we find her praising. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God. Now, what's she giving thanks to God for? She's giving thanks to God because this one is a Redeemer. Verse 38 says that she was speaking of him to all those in Jerusalem who were looking for redemption. Folks, you looking for redemption? Look no further. It's right there. That baby in that woman's arms, that's your redemption. That's your releasing. You're being set free. It's through that one right there. So she was praising God for the redemption, that God had remembered his people and sent a redeemer to release them from the bondage and the groaning and the misery of their sin. And then thirdly, she proclaimed. She starts talking about this guy, or this baby, I should say. She began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Probably a better translation would be all those in Jerusalem looking for redemption. That's really the, the gist of verse 38. There were people in Jerusalem looking for redemption. They didn't know where to find it. And she starts telling them, this is where it's at. Now, what does she speak about? What does it say? What's our three-letter word there? Him. Speaking of Him. That's who Anna spoke about. She didn't speak about her confession of faith or her creed or the temple and see how beautiful it is. I mean, there's lots of religious things she could have talked about. She talked about him. And same thing with Simeon, right? He spoke about this child. This child. Him. What I'm leading up to, and maybe you haven't seen this until right now, is that Simeon and Anna we're witnesses of the glory of Christ. And folks, you and I are also witnesses of the glory of Christ. Every Christian, 
is to be a witness to the glory of Christ. And it is our job not to speak about our church or our doctrine, as though we've got the best one on the planet, and boy, I just can't wait till I introduce you to my doctrine. No, we're to speak about Jesus. We're even to speak about Jesus more than the law. Sometimes we can become more enamored with the law than with Jesus, I think. The law, need, the law will create a thirst in us for Jesus, but He is the solution. He is life. He is King. He is all in all. He is everything. Without Jesus, folks, you and I have nothing in this world. We are headed for eternal flames without Jesus Christ. He is the lover of our soul. He is our Redeemer. He is our Savior. So that's who they spoke about. Now let's go back and let's think about what the Lord would have us do with this text today. What did the Holy Spirit put this for? Well, number one, He just wants us to understand that there were others that pointed to Christ as witnesses, as credible witnesses to who He was. That's right. But there's more than that. God has called you and I to be Spirit-called and empowered witnesses to who Jesus is. Are you a Christian? Then you're a witness. Every single one of us is to conduct ourselves with wisdom toward outsiders. Every single one of us is to have our speech be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt, so that we know how to respond to every person. Every one of us is to be ready to give an answer to those who ask about the hope that is within us. This isn't for the super spiritual. This is for you and me. One of the things that the Lord has impressed upon us here at the bridge is this right here, that we are in every member ministry. The, the days where you had a church and the pastor did everything are long gone. It's unbiblical. The pastor is like a player coach. Those of you old enough to remember Pete Rose, he was a player coach. Yes, he was a coach, but he also could get in the game. And every member of the body of Christ is to be in the game. Every member is to be a witness for Christ. Remember Matthew 28, here is the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. Now wait a minute. These 11 apostles are to go into all the world, and they're to make disciples, and they're to teach them something. And what they're to teach them is to do everything that Jesus had commanded them, and Jesus had just got done commanding them to make disciples. So let me ask you a couple of questions this morning. How many disciples have you made? Are you going to be content to go to heaven without any, any disciples? I sure hope not. How many disciples, if you're honest, have you made? How many have you led to Jesus? And if you've led them to Jesus, how many of them have you baptized? You say, well, Brian, I can't do that. That's the pastor's job. Where does the Bible say that? There's no rules in the New Testament about who does the baptizing. If you lead someone to Jesus, I want you to have the privilege of baptizing that person. How many have you baptized? And then how many of them have you taught to observe everything that Jesus commanded? This is our marching orders. Folks, we can do a lot of things. We can have lots of great potluck dinners. And we can have great worship here. But if we fail in this, we have no right to exist. If we don't do this, let's take away our shingle and let's fold up shop. Because this is what he left his church to do. That's why our, our motto is making disciples who make disciples. That's what Jesus told us to do. 
And if we don't do that, let's just fold it up and stop right now. But folks, I am absolutely committed to that goal because it's the one Jesus gave us. And he's Lord, right? A Lord is the one who calls the shots. A Lord is the one who we have to obey. We have no right to pick and choose from this Bible what we're going to do. And if Jesus, the Lord of glory, told us to do this, then we better get started doing it. And thank God, He's given us a heart to do that here. He's given us a heart and a will. And that's why people are at the light rail station, handing out tracts and witnessing and preaching. And that's why people are involved in missional communities and trying to involve neighbors that live around a particular home to get to know them and invite them over. And that's why we're doing everything that we're doing here. We're wanting to obey Jesus. So I want to encourage you. I want to exhort you this morning. Let's just reconsecrate ourselves to the mission Jesus gave us as head of the church that we'll be obedient to what he's called us to do. So has there been a point in your life when you have longed for Jesus? There was guilt in your life and shame. And you knew not, something needed to change. And you longed for someone or something that could free you from that. And then what did the Holy Spirit invisibly and supernaturally lead you to someone or to his word or to a church or somewhere where you heard the life-giving words of Christ and the way of salvation? And then did you look on him with faith? And then did you lift him up? Did you embrace him as your savior? Not just your mom or your dad's or your friends, but as yours. You, you, you embraced him by faith. And then did you find him liberating you and releasing you from the penalty of sin and the power of sin? If that's true, then we need to be like Simeon. We need to start laying out the truth about Jesus. So we need to be asking God, direct me, send me. Give me a, a love for these people that you put around me in my life. Lord, who is it that I can bring the message of truth to? Would you give me boldness to do it so I don't chicken out because of the fear of man? And like Anna, if you have perceived that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and if that has caused you to spontaneously praise God for Him, then we need to be about the business of proclaiming to all who are looking for redemption. See, the Lord is stirring people's hearts. Everyone's at different places. The Lord has to draw a person for that person to come to Christ. So we need to be looking for people that the Lord has begun to draw, to stir. How long ago was it? Almost two years when I stopped by apartment number 20 in Rancho Terrace Apartments and met somebody that the Lord was stirring. There's a lot of other people in those apartments the Lord wasn't doing that to, but he was to one individual. And faith sprung up. And life, new birth. See, God has got a people. Do you remember when the Lord appeared to Paul in Corinth? He says, don't give up, don't move out. I've got many people in this city. Stay here. The Lord has got some people in Rancho Cordova. The Lord has got some people in the greater Sacramento area. We just got to go get them. We got to go find them. We need to be like Anna. Proclaim Jesus to those looking for redemption. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that your word would have its intended effect in our hearts, that, Lord, we as your people would humbly just reconsecrate our lives again to you and to your service and to obeying your commission. 
We pray, Lord, that we would never flag and never tire. We pray for the Spirit of God to stir in us a greater zeal for Christ and His glory. Lord, we want Jesus to be famous. We want the fame of His name to go throughout this entire world. Not only in Sacramento, but we want to see His fame go into Bangladesh, into India, into South America, and Africa. We want to see people converted and become worshipers of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So, Lord, would you do that great work? Exalt your son, Jesus, and we know that's why you've done everything. And so we know you'll answer this prayer. Use your people here, Lord, at the bridge. In Jesus' name, amen.